Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a very special, special show. I uh, I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do for the 100th episode. I can't even believe we've already gotten to 100. It's, uh, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And right now, it's the evening time. It's Sunday. And uh, we've got some weather, I think, coming in. Tomorrow might be a rainy day, but it's finally cooled off. This has been a scorcher of a weekend, literally scorched earth here in the boatyard. It's dry. It's dusty. It's been windy. Just little tornadoes of dust all over the place. I feel like I could wash Sparrow down every single day and watch the brown run off of it, but... It's, uh, I don't know, in some ways it's kind of nice. It's reminiscent of some of the hot, hot, crazy times down near the equator, which we'll be getting into a little bit later here. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just, it's, it's incredible. I want to, I want to get some shout outs in for sure. Uh, all of, you know, the, obviously the Patreon family is super important. You guys have uh, kept me going and kept me producing, coming up with new ideas, all the listeners out there and friends of mine that have gone and given me sort of some fodder for the old podcast canon, if you will, trying to come up with good ideas and good things to talk about. And, um, you know, definitely all the people who have sat down with me, taken their valuable time and just uh, spent it with me and let me pick their brain, peel them back like an onion and... That's that's absolutely amazing that people do that, and we we still hopefully have a few few people lined up. It has been a bit of a struggle, um, and I know I say that a lot, but this one's a little bit different. There are a couple people who are very keen to come on the podcast. The only problem has been this last week, literally below deck on Sparrow is floating in the eighty-five to ninety degree range, and. It's only cool at maybe like 5 in the morning or after 10 o'clock at night, which does not really suit my schedule or anybody else's schedule to come and sit on this boat and because we can't really have the fans on, which uh, would alleviate some of the lip sweat that I definitely get. Um, so it's a little bit uncomfortable, but I think with the coming week, the cooler temperatures, it's going to be just about perfect to, uh, get some more interviews out before the end of the month, which is fantastic. But yeah, it's, it's been a ride. Holy cow. You know, when I first put this thing out, I didn't, uh, I didn't really, I didn't expect it to be more than me recording some of these long voyages and bringing them back to terra firma and putting them out so that people could get a glimpse into the mind of a solo sailor. And then, I don't know, if I think back, I think the first the first time I actually sat down with somebody was, uh, oh gosh, it was way back. We talked about doing the Great Loop and... Um, Oh, geez. Walt. Yeah, Walt. Man, Walt was great. I, I, I think I've only seen him one time afterwards, uh, but 
He's doing well. He definitely is. And all the others that came after that, I don't know. The interview stuff is a lot of fun. And I, I do have to say, I was sort of surprised. I thought once I started doing interviews, that would be all that people ever wanted to hear. And um, I don't know. I was kind of shocked to get a lot of emails from people saying that in actuality, they like the rambling just as much as they like the interviews, uh, which surprises me. But hey, uh, I'm ready to ramble because I spend a lot of time alone on this boat. I mean, not that I don't enjoy it, but it's kind of nice to be able to just talk into a microphone for sure. But before we get into any more of the stuff, I'm going to get the, the little plugs for, for me out of the way. If you want to contact the show, you reach out to me. Just go to my uh, my webpage, sailingintooblivion.com. You can email the show directly. I still haven't updated it yet. Maybe I'll do that after this. I always say that, and then I, I never do. I know one of, the, one of the issues of the internet is just about as slow as a snail in winter up here. And uh, that, that definitely, every time I try and pull up that Squarespace stuff, I... Oh, I watch it just not load and not load, and then I give up. But uh, you can still go to that website and contact me. And then, obviously, if you want to support the podcast, really, there are two ways of doing it. One is to go on Patreon. The link will be in the description. And the other, really, is just to uh, pick up a copy of uh, The Old Sailing into Oblivion, the book that still sells copies. I can't believe it. It's... uh, it's fantastic. I, I heard a statistic saying that most books, the average book that goes and is produced out of uh, on Amazon uh, will sell 250 copies in its lifetime. And we've done that. Uh, we did that a long, long time ago, and people still keep picking it up. So again, just I that's me just trying to thank the universe, I guess, and uh, all the people that, I don't know, uh, find it interesting and and are willing to uh, are willing to fork over some hard-earned cash <laughs> oh man well that's enough about that but yeah so one of the things obviously if you've been listening for a while that I've been sort of delving into lately is or are the sailing stories not just from myself but from other other solo sailors and just other other sailing uh, stories, and because there's there's a plethora, there's a billion really interesting, crazy stories out there, and I've read so many short stories, full books, all this stuff, and I'm hoping to be able to sort of bring those to to the audience and uh, shed some light on them, and then also sort of, I guess, lead you into possibly picking up somebody else's uh, book or whatever that describes the story, um, you know, how I, I got into it. And a lot of these, a lot of these, I've become so interested. I've, I've done more research and stuff like that. And I'm hoping to be able to sort of put those, keep, keep putting those out on YouTube and such. But for this one, I don't know this one. I don't think I'm ready. Uh, the YouTube stuff is still so, uh, it's, it's still in its infancy as far as me being able to cut videos together to make them, uh, a little more entertaining, and so I think I'm probably going to save this one for another day, at least for that. So I'm just going to put it out for the podcast, for my listeners, and it's uh, my my take and uh, my experience with reading the book In the Heart of the Sea 
the tragedy of the whale ship Essex, and that's uh, a book by Nathaniel Philbrook, and or Philbrick, and oh my, I I still remember my brother Adam giving me a copy of that, and I read it, and I was absolutely just from the first couple pages, just instantly like, what happened to these people? And it really is. It's one of those stories that. It's almost too hard to, it's hard to believe that it actually went on, and it's hard to believe that people actually survived this, and I don't know, it's it's pretty crazy, so that's that's what we're going to sort of get into today, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to shed a little bit of my insight on it, because some of it takes place in, in some of the areas of the world that I've done some sailing, and uh, you know, you read these stories, and it does, whenever I read either a solo round the world story or something like that. I mean, it's a hundred percent relatable because I've been to most of the places and I know the feelings that they're going through and, and everything. And I don't know. I think it's sometimes it's kind of cool if you're hearing a story, even if it's not a person's own story, if they have sort of their take on it, it seems, I don't know. It's kind of cool. So I'm going to try and get all these facts and figures and all this sort of stuff uh, correct for this this podcast, do it justice. But uh, yeah, my main source is definitely In the Heart of the Sea, not the movie, the book. Although the movie was enjoyable, I will say that. Uh, it just, you know, the book is just better. It's almost always that way. Uh, it just is what it is. But I've also done quite a bit of uh, documentary watching on YouTube and stuff when it comes to this one because it is just... It's fascinating. It's fascinating what happens. And essentially, our story starts out on that tiny little island of Nantucket uh, in the early 1800s. You know, 18, I believe they set out in 1819 uh, in August. And essentially, the whale ship Essex was 88 feet long. So it was a smaller uh, whaling ship for the time, but it was also a proven ship. It had been out on on various voyages. It always brought back tons of oil, and so it was it was deemed, as they say, a a good ship to be on. And they had aboard four of the whaling boats. And a whaling boat is different than a whaling ship in that a whaling boat are little boats that get launched off the big one to go and actually capture and kill the whales bring them back to the whaling ship and then process them for their valuable oil. Because at this time, uh, they hadn't really developed the the whole uh, oil coming out of the ground thing. And the American Industrial Revolution was pretty much powered completely uh, and lubricated by whale oil and candles and lamps and all that sort of stuff. It was all whale oil. So it was lighting the place and it was making the machines go. So it was pretty much one of the most important industries out there. And it had been going for a long time and they were able to just get whales straight from basically the waters around Nantucket. But eventually they depleted that out and the whales, you know, they're not stupid. They're not just going to keep coming back to the same place they're getting slaughtered. So they have to start venturing further and further out. And as Nantucket grew and grew as sort of the epicenter of whaling, 
It became very prosperous, and it it became an economic powerhouse. So they were able to build ships, put crew on the ships, and start sailing for longer and longer time frames. And in the beginning, they would just have to go out in the Atlantic, and then they had to go to the South Atlantic. And then within a couple of decades, it was like they're going down to the Arctic and around Africa and then into the Pacific which is where our tale of the Essex will take us. And so in August, they take off. Remember, that's hurricane season time. And they head off to get to Cape Horn. You can't take the direct route. And, oh, before before I even get in this, I want to just mention our three main characters, the captain, the first mate, <laughs> and the cabin boy. And the reason I, I isolate those three, because there's a crew total of 21 people, is that those three were the ones that really brought the story back. Uh, they, they brought back with them all the information. Uh, they wrote about it, and they passed on the information. The most interesting one, I think, is uh, the cabin boy, Thomas Nickerson. He ended up writing, basically transcribing his, his diary, which told the whole story, and uh, it was lost for like 100 years. And then they find it in like the 1960s. And so it sort of challenged the other version that the first mate, Owen Chase, had written. But it was one of those things where, I don't know, there's, there's multiple sources. So the, uh, so the book in the heart of the sea sort of takes them all in, which I think is why it's such a valuable source. And I'm definitely going to keep citing it because it's just a fascinating read. They also have it on audiobook. In any event, so you got Captain, J- Captain George Pollard, first mate Owen Chase, and cabin boy Thomas Nickerson. And so they set off, and again, it's it's hurricane season. The Gulf Stream's pretty hot. It's kind of a tumultuous time to cross the Atlantic straight away from the East Coast. And lo and behold, they get out to the Gulf Stream, and they get hit by a pretty severe squall, severe enough that they had too much sail up and were actually fully knocked down. And Having experienced both the Gulf Stream when it's like that on this last voyage for days and days, it was just whiteout squall conditions. Luckily, I didn't have all my sails up, but I do know the feeling of your boat turning 90 degrees and the sails and the mast hitting the water, and it's absolutely terrifying to do it on a 32-foot boat, let alone an 88-foot fully stocked boat that uh, or a ship with all these people on it. it must have been terrifying but then they ended up breaking quite a bit of stuff and i think they damaged or lost actually a couple of the small whale boats which is a serious problem because if you don't have those how are you going to go catch the whales and so they considered actually heading back and after talking it over and trying to figure things out you know it was already hard enough for them to get the crew that they had And they knew that if they headed back, they almost for certain were going to end up having to, they were going to lose crew. People would jump ship. uh, And then all of a sudden now they're in an even worse place. Also, the people that own the ship are probably going to be like, well, what were you guys thinking, man? Uh, It'd be kind of like me setting off on a trip and then a week later turning around and, and ending up back home, you know, rather than some other destination. Some, sometimes it's just better to keep on going. Maybe not this time, though. <laughs> so 
they figure, you know what, we'll go, we'll do a pit stop, and uh, they have to go all the way across the Atlantic, pretty much towards Africa, and then ride the trade winds and the currents down towards the equator. And on the way is that beautiful little island, and the islands of Cape Verde. And they stop there, and they're able to, they find a wreck of another ship, uh, and they are able to purchase the whale boats off of that ship. And they weren't in the best shape, but they would do. And it was sort of a pretty lucky little thing for them because now they're they're back to pretty much full equipped so that they can do, they can actually do the pro, uh, they can go out and do the whaling that they need to do. And in any event, so they get down there. And I those conditions, as you get close to Africa and stuff, again, sort of in the tail end or the height of the hurricane season, you're you're looking at tropical waves coming off of Africa as the form of thunderstorms off the Congo, and then they hit the Atlantic and sometimes they explode. So this is pretty ugly sailing at that time of year. And I was down there in 2020 at that same time, and it was... It was ugly. It was really hard. It um, You got becalmed for long amounts of time, longer than I think I ever have. And again, they're on a ship that has no engine, so they would have been just floating. It's 90 degrees. You're hoping to catch rain. A lot of the rain has tons of dust and dirt in it, so it's not even that great for drinking. It would have been a pretty tough slog, not to mention you get 21 people with you and they all stink and it's probably pretty gross and the food's getting all hot. And again, they don't have refrigeration. So trying to put myself in that position, you know, at least I had a refrigerator solar panel and I could listen to podcasts and music and stuff. These guys were in a whole different situation. Also, they had not, uh, I don't believe, uh, oh no, they had caught, I believe one whale at this point and that is it. I think it took them a, a month to get to the first, or no, three months. So they hadn't even caught, they hadn't even caught a whale yet. Um, so they get through the doldrums. Now they're in the Southeast trades. They're booking their way South and they're pretty much headed right towards the Falkland Islands. And then they're going to make their try for Cape Horn. And by the time they did get to Cape Horn, they had caught and processed one whale. And essentially you know, not to get into all the gruesome details of what they have to do, but yeah, they go out in the small boats, they they harpoon the whale and essentially go on what they call a Nantucket sleigh ride where the, the whale just takes off because it's freaking out, but they're tied up now on this little boat and the boat gets towed at high speed until the sperm whale ends up sort of slowing down and tiring out and then they can get right alongside it and they just stab it to death. Uh, it's pretty gruesome. I, I would hate to hate to see anything like that. I think whales are such amazing creatures and, uh, I don't know, but different time. It's a different time. What can you say? And, and then once they kill it, they bring it back to the big ship and processing essentially means they're cutting all the blubber off of it so that they can boil it and they render the oil, the whale oil out of it that way and then put it in casks. And the sperm whale especially was sort of the ideal whale for this because it came with it in its its sort of square-shaped forehead, so to speak, was a big um, cavern of, of what they called spermaceti, which is essentially just pure whale oil. And 
it was the highest grade and all the stuff, the most valuable. And so they could just go in and scoop that out instead of boiling it or anything like that. And so they were always going after these sperm whales. And <clears throat> yeah, it would be, it would usually take a couple of days to take care of and process one. And you got to think, I mean, you've got these fires going on the boat to boil these cauldrons, this black smoke, you know, they're using some of the blubber to keep the fires going. The smell would have been awful. You would have been just covered in sooty, blood dripping, like there's sharks all around you. I think that was from the movie. That was probably one of the only scenes that uh, I was like, wow, that's probably right. Exactly what it was like where there's sharks just all over trying to eat that carcass while these guys are trying to cut it up because it's in the water still. And oh my gosh, I, I just couldn't even imagine. You wouldn't want to slip and fall on that uh, anytime that was going on. That's for sure. You end up in that water, you are dead. But in any event, so they make it to Cape Horn. And this is kind of a part I always take a little bit of uh, a little pride in this one as far as the uh, history of the American sailor and, and all that sort of stuff is is that the American whale ships were routinely going around Cape Horn backwards, so to speak, you know, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, which is against all of the current and the the weather systems. They were doing that for a long time and kind of doing it in a pretty cavalier, cavalier manner, you know, basically saying, yeah, we, we do that. We go over Cause you know, it wasn't that much, uh, before then when, Captain Bly ended up having to turn around after trying to round Cape Horn in that direction for over, I think he was there for a month um, and just got kept getting beaten back. And I know Cape Horn's kind of one of those places it can be really bad or it can be not so bad uh, or it can be absolutely horrific. And a lot of it just comes down to the roll of the dice. But the American sailors were doing it and they were they were punching that that little uh, that little cape rounding out quite often, which you just have to tip your hat to it. Cause those guys were real deal. I mean, they, they make sailors like me, uh, look like, uh, pleasure cruisers for sure. In any event, so they get around and they start heading up the coast of Chile and they start actually finding some more whales. You know, they get a few here, a few there. I think the count got up to maybe 11 or so. And they were also doing some pit stops along the way, fresh provisions and, and all that sort of stuff. But they were also talking with other whale boats because this this is a pretty big industry. There's lots of whale boats out there, and they're all hunting the same thing. And they're pretty disgruntled because essentially if you have a slow start and you're out there trying to catch these whales, if... If that's the case, then it just means you're going to be out there for longer and longer. And as as far as whaling goes, by by 1820, a lot of those ships were going to be out there for two, three years at a time. I mean, that's a long chunk of your life to be gone on a job and never seeing your family. A lot of these guys are married. They have kids, all that sort of stuff. I mean, think about that see any of them for three years and then you're back for six months and then you go back out on another one you could end up spending you know the majority of your life out there whaling so they go and they come across some other whalers that sort of tip them off to a new spot a spot that is sort of untouched barely seen but there's lots and lots of whales and it's called the offshore grounds and essentially this is 
pretty much smack dab in the middle of the Atlantic along the or uh, smack dab in the middle of the Pacific along the equator, almost like two thousand miles away from the coast of South America, and really just a yeah, you're out there. And even for these guys who spend tons of time out there and multiple trips, a lot of them had already done, it's one of those things where that's that's like way, way out there. And the equator is, again, it's not like the nicest place to sail. You get a lot of the big squalls. It's hot. You get becalmed a lot. So it's it's not ideal sort of sailing conditions, but they're desperate. They got a job to do. They've got to go out there. And so on their way to get to these hallowed offshore grounds and find all their whales, they stop in the Galapagos. And this is a part of the story that I think struck me as, oh, what happened to these guys was just karma uh, in a way. And that essentially what they do, what all the whalers used to do is they would stop in the Galapagos because the Galapagos has tortoises. And it has millions and millions of tortoises. At least back then it did. And, well, until the whaler ships got there. <laughs> but essentially, so they would go and uh, they'd go out and do what's called turtling. And they would head out. All the crew goes out into the onto an island and they collect as many tortoises as possible. I think the Essex probably took about 100, 150 of them. And essentially they were really great for what they needed them because they could bring them onto the ship. They could just walk around the ship or they could stick them in the hold upside down. Didn't really matter. You didn't have to feed them. You didn't have to give them water. And they could live for almost a year like that, believe it or not. That, to me, is just shocking and uh, torturous and just horrible. But it allowed these guys to have fresh meat that they could eat for the duration of however long those things lasted. And on this particular stop, one of the crew members decided it would be funny to light a small little bushfire as all of his fellow crewmen were out trying to catch all these tortoises. And essentially it got out of hand because the Galapagos is a pretty hot place, pretty dry place, and uh, ended up burning the whole island to the ground. Um, none of the people none of the sailors ended up dying they were all able to get out narrowly but anything else that was living on that island definitely did not and i'm pretty sure to this day it is still just a wasteland um if it hasn't if people aren't starting to try and reclaim it i don't know but it's one of those things where these guys really uh really screwed up on that one they decimated an entire island they took all the ones that they had with them they set off, and even into the night, they could still see the glow of the flames off in the horizon, you know, 50 miles away. It just saddens me to think how how just <laughs> environmentally unfriendly a maneuver that was. Not only are you just going to go there and capture all these animals and then torture them and eat them, uh, you burn down their habitat completely. So, and I think it, you know, probably caused an extinction of that certain type of tortoise because the Galapagos are those islands where every island has specific little different things. But in any event, that karma is going to come back and bite them not too long. So now at this point, they're pretty much, they've been on this boat for like a year and a half <clears throat> and they get out 
to these offshore grounds. And as promised, there are whales aplenty. And they are able to get a bunch of whales. And they're starting to grow. They're, the barrels of oil are piling up. And then one day they're out, just like any other, and they spot the whales. And so all three whale boats are deployed. They all head out. And uh, within pretty short time, the first mate, Owen Chase, gets smacked by one of the, the tails of one of these sperm whales, and it breaks the boat, takes some of the planks out, so they have to get back to the Essex to fix the boat or grab one of the others and then head back out and get back into the fight. And essentially, they're on the boat, and he decides, I'm just going to fix it, and so he's hammering away on these planks. And there's a couple schools of thought or a couple theories when it comes to why what happened actually happened. And sperm whales are, they typically roam around, they'll have one bull whale, you know, big male, an old male, and then you've got the females in the pod and their offspring or their young. And if other bull whales want to move in on the territory, then they got to fight and all that sort of stuff. So it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's usually just one bull. And Sperm whales use clicks to communicate, and it is thought or is theorized that the hammering, and he would have been doing it pretty frantically, I'll bet, the hammering of Owen Chase hammering away on this boat that's on the deck of the Essex was echoing through the Essex and out into the water. And when this big monster old bull whale shows up, it sort of surfaces, you know, 100 100 yards away from the boat. It may have pretty much thought that the Essex was another bull and it needed to lay down the law. And so that that's one theory. And essentially, this, this bull starts, the whale comes in and just rams the Essex. Boom, full body, just bang, smashes it up and definitely springs some leaks. But the Essex is okay. I mean, you know, it, those boats are pretty hardy. They can take quite a bit. Even though the Essex was an old boat, she was pretty stout and definitely proven. Now, the other theory that I sort of like, and which is probably not true, but at least, you know, to each their own, is that, you know, whales are sentient beings and they know what the heck's going on and they're not stupid. And uh, no matter how trusting they are of, of people, when they see their family members essentially getting slaughtered and chased, then you know what? Maybe it's time to fight back. And I like to think that this whale basically said, you know what? Enough is enough. And just decided, I think I'm going to try and see if I can break apart that ship that keeps putting those people out here that keep killing my family. And the second time after, so it hits the Essex. The the bull whale is stunned. We can call him Moby Dick if we want to because the story was based on him. Uh, so this whale is just sitting there. It's sort of stunned right next to it. And at this point, uh, Owen Chase has the opportunity. He's got the harpoon in his hand. He could start to lance this thing, but he also realizes how close it is to the Essex. It's tail Everything is right there. If that thing goes wild when you spear it or harpoon it, then it could do some serious damage to the boat, and so he hesitates. And that's a feeling that I sort of know a little bit about. When I was in the Indian Ocean, I had these two fin whales that were 
swimming right alongside, very curious about me and Mighty Sparrow, and they'd swim right up next to the boat. They were a little bit bigger than Sparrow, and uh, the tail, the tail of these things were just right next to the rudder, right next to Mongo, just, oh my gosh, it was so close. And it went on for like an hour. It was both terrifying and amazing at the same time, but I realized that I was completely, you know, this, this whale could take out Mighty Sparrow's ability to steer without even a thought and not even really maybe even know, know he actually did it, you know? And so it's a pretty uh, overwhelming feeling to have some animal that's that big capable of doing that much damage. And so I can understand why Owen would have sort of hesitated there and, and thought it through and, and been like, you know what, uh, it's right next to us. Let's not uh, get it any more mad than it already is. But in any event, once it sort of shakes that off, it, it it swims away a little bit, but then it surfaces again about twice as far away from the Essex as it was before, and it just hard charges right back to the ship. And without a doubt, it hit it twice as hard, and it cracked it good, and it, it sort of demanded a lethal blow at that point. And within minutes, the Essex starts to uh, heal over, heal over, heal over, and now it's on its side. And shortly after this, at some point, I'm sure some of these other, the other two whale boats that are out there probably looked back and thought to themselves, uh, why is, why is, where, where did the mast go? What's going on over there? And then realized that there was a serious issue with the Essex. And so, you know, again, these guys are all out in the middle of the Pacific, just an absolute void. They're in little boats far away from their mothership and now they look back and the mothership is not doing well and probably sinking so they get back they release the whales they've caught they get back to the ship join the others and dude they are i i can't even imagine the feeling i mean it it, essentially it's kind of like if i if i had a paddleboard and i've had this dream before where i'm out on you know like say the doldrums or something like that or just anywhere on the ocean where you're totally becalmed. And I've gone swimming before, and that's one thing, but you're never that far away from the boat. But I've had this dream about paddle boarding, and for some reason in the dream, I don't take the sails down. I just go hove to, and I hop on the paddle board, and I'm sort of out, and I'm like taking pictures of the sparrow and all that sort of stuff, and uh, and then the wind changes, and the sails fill, and sparrow leaves, and I'm on a paddle board now. And I've had that dream plenty of times, which is why I will never, ever, ever do it in real life. But besides the point, I, I don't know. I, I can, I can sort of put myself in that, in that position of holy cow, my safety net just disappeared, and now we're in these little tiny things. I mean, it's almost like Stephen Callahan, you know, once Solo went down, and now he's in that little tiny life raft. His whole world, you just your confidence is is gone. I mean. The big ship, the mothership, is what gives you the confidence to go out to sea. And now these guys are stuck in 28-foot boats, and there's there's uh, there's 20 of them now. I forgot about that part. One guy jumped ship in South America at one of the ports. You know, Not that important, but it definitely probably affected morale a little bit. Uh, in the end, though, he's a really lucky guy because he didn't end up going with the rest of them. So they tie off to the Essex because a big wooden ship like that, it's not going to quite sink as fast as you think. And lots of stuff is floating off of it. There's hogs, there's tortoises, all this stuff. They're trying to gather up everything they can, 
you know, they still got to be able to navigate. They have to be able to eat. They got to drink water, all this sort of stuff. And they even end up getting uh, pistols because there's going to have to be some semblance of order on these ships because each one of these has uh, six or seven people on each one of these boats. And they've got Captain Pollard's on one, Owen Chase is on another, and... I forget the name of the guy who was in the the third one, but there's three three boats and they're all commanded. And um, essentially, they sit there for like two days, tied off to this wreck as it's slowly sinking, and they're just collecting more and more stuff. And um, yeah, eventually they make the decision. You know, it's time to time to figure out what we're gonna do. And at this point in history. The South Pacific Islands that we love so much, the Tahitis and uh, the Society Islands, the Marquesas, all these have this really bad reputation for cannibalism. And it's well-earned because they had a lot of cannibals back then. And it was something that terrified these guys from Nantucket and actually made them sort of consider, instead of trying to sail downwind, because, again, they're in the Pacific the winds in the middle of the planet are pretty much going from the east to the west. They're called the trade winds. And if they're going to go anywhere, going downwind is going to be a heck of a lot easier than trying to beat back into it, especially in these whale boats that they've sort of had to make shift into sailboats. And they end up making the decision that rather than sail for any of these islands that are maybe a couple of weeks away, and downwind, they're going to try and get back to the mainland or get to Easter Island, someplace that's known and they know isn't going to be infested with, you know, uh, locals that are cannibals. And so they build these boats up, they put masts in them, they've got sails, they, they're trying to use everything they can, and they actually even build up the gunnels, which are the sides of the boat, because these these boats really are just made for... They're, they're hardy little boats, and they're made to go fast, but they're not made to sail, and they're not made to be in big seas for a long time. And so they, they do what they can. Back then, luckily, everybody's pretty handy with a hammer and nails and all that and wood. So they get the boats going, and they all set off. And the sort of the idea is they're going to ration whatever they have, and they're going to try and stick together as best as they can, and they're going to try and make their way south and then get east because if they can get out of the trade winds into the variables, then they have a better chance of catching winds coming from the west and then they can make it back to South America or Easter Island. And days turn into weeks and weeks turn into a month and they're almost completely out of food. They go through like a storm. They go through calm weather, scorching heat. I mean, it's just awful. And they're rationed down. They're, they're essentially eating hardtack, which is, think of the heaviest, it's like a biscuit that almost, uh, it's, uh, it's like a scone, but if a scone was like 10 times heavier, it's got a lot of calories in it, but it's, it's not very good. And they've got these turtles or these tortoises and, and all that sort of stuff, but it's mostly water hard tack and um and that's about it and they actually even get to a point where they're eating some of the gooseneck barnacles off the bottoms of these boats but after a month out at sea they end up coming across and this 
Totally sick because they're all just depleted. You know, think about it. You're just sunburnt and you've got boils from the salt and the sun and you're you're dehydrated and you're not eating. You've lost all your fat. It's You're, you're basically going insane and you're stuck on these little boats with everybody. Just a nightmare scenario. And they're coming to the end of uh, their water supply, essentially. They still have a decent amount of food that they can eat, but they can't even eat that because they're they're so dehydrated. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, one of them looks over, and there is an island. And it's a low-lying island, nothing really tall, not the big, beautiful Tahitian islands or anything, but it's an island all the same. And they get over to it, and they're still, even though they're like dying of thirst, they are still very weary. They're they're like, whoa, uh, before we go on there, and they start like firing a couple shots, and they sort of sail on one side and then to the other. They're just checking things out, hoping that if there are people there, they're friendly, or there aren't any people there. And so eventually they land on the island. And these guys, I mean, trying to picture <laughs> what this scene would have looked like. I mean, these guys were just completely sun bleached their clothes are already pretty raggedy you know their their eyes are sunk in the back of their head none of them can probably talk more than a few words because they're just so dehydrated and they hit that beach and they're you know they're just like wandering around like zombies and there's 20 of them and they just all sort of spread out and um they're looking for food. They're looking for anything. They There's lots of seabirds there. And when you get to some of these really far off islands, the seabirds, they don't, they don't encounter humans, so they're not scared of you. I, I had been on one of those in in a trip in Mexico in the Sea of Cortez, and these birds were not. They You could walk right up to them. They didn't, they didn't care because they just never felt a threat. And these guys just start pouncing on them, eating their eggs, anything they can just to just to get food in their bellies and the whole time they're looking for water as well because there's growth there's green you know life on the on the island there's plants and stuff so there must be some fresh water there somewhere but they search throughout the day most of them can barely even move a lot of them are just lying around and they don't find anything that first day and then on the second day they're sort of like well if we can't find any water, like we got to keep going. Uh, but they don't have much water at all, if any, to keep going. So it's sort of like, well, uh, where are you going to go? You're not going to actually make it anywhere because you're just going to die of thirst. You might as well stay on this island, right? I mean, I would. I wouldn't even think twice about going back out to sea. I'd be like, all right, small island, guys. We got to, uh, you know, we can't just abuse our resources here. Let's see if we can sustain ourselves for a long enough time that we can get rescued. That'd be my thinking, but apparently these guys were in a whole different zone because they basically pounced upon anything and everything they could. Very quickly, the birds and stuff started to forsake the island, and and they grew weary of it and all that sort of stuff. And um, But they eventually did find at... At the absolute low tide, all of a sudden, this little stream was sort of bubbling out near this big rock. And essentially what was happening is that fresh water can sort of float on salt water. So a deposit, essentially, in this big sort of limestone raised coral island was was sort of housed underneath the island but the only time it started to spill over was when tide was extremely low and they go down and they fill up as many caskets and i mean this would have been 
uh, unbelievable relief. Now, now everybody can drink water. They're all getting hydrated. They're getting, uh, I think they call it, uh, being water drunk where you're just, you're delirious because you finally are hydrating yourself and all that. And so now they're, they're getting it. And then the next day they get more and they're, they're stocking up their supply. And within a week, they essentially had, uh, run out of, most of the seabird eggs and the seabirds weren't really coming around anymore and they were definitely way harder to catch. Fishing would have been kind of difficult there as well, but uh, essentially they just abused their resources and within a week they they were having trouble finding food. So they, they basically sat down and said, all right, well, we got enough water, let's get back on the boats. And there were three guys that sort of raised their hand and were like, ah, you know... About those boats, uh, I don't think me and my two friends are actually going to go uh, with you guys. I think we'll stay here. We'll take our chances on the island. And I'll tell you one thing right now. I would have been one of those people without question. I would never get back on that boat. Oh, my gosh. Not even for a split second. But, you know, uh, staying on that island would have been pretty risky as well because again this is way back in the day there wasn't a whole lot of traffic out there and your chances of surviving uh were probably not all that good but you know at least you could live out the rest of your days on a little island you know you get a beach it's good enough for me uh but in any event so three of them stay the rest of them go and again we've got captain pollard on one uh, the guy I can't remember was captaining the other one. And then Owen Chase is on the third boat. And they're going to, again, try the same thing, stick together, and see if they can make it. And eventually, after a good amount of time, they end up getting a little bit separated. And Owen Chase's boat kind of gets ahead of the rest of them. And Pollard and the other boats stay close together and again, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into a month, and they start running out of food again and water again. And when Owen Chase was really a sort of a hard individual, you know, the first mates had to be pretty commanding and bossy and mean and all that sort of stuff. And he he sort of ruled his boat with an iron fist. And, you know, if somebody was, I think at one point, one of the crew members on there stole some hardtack out of the chest and uh, has basically said that if you do that again, uh, I will kill you. And, you know, he had a gun to back it up with. And so he was really adamant about these are our rations. This is what we're getting. And, you know, we're talking like an ounce of hardtack and like the teeniest sip of water and that was what you got for the day just miserable absolutely miserable especially in the heat of the sun and all that it would have been absolutely awful every anytime like a flying fish landed on the boat it was sort of like oh and you just swallow the thing whole just to get that nutrition now on the other boats they start running out as well and uh, one boat ends up running out of all their provisions and so they go to Captain Pollard's boat, and Captain Pollard ends up sharing the rest of his provisions with that boat, so they run out even faster. And now we're, we're talking literally since the Essex sank, we're talking 60, 70 days, 80 days have gone by, and they're in these boats. I mean, that is insane to be in these tiny boats, going through all the weather, 
you know, let alone let alone the food and the water situation and the sun, you know, no sunscreen, no toothpaste, none of none of the things that make life sort of pleasant. Uh, they got they have none of that. And they're having to deal with the weather. I mean, every time a system rolls through, it's they go through one where it's blowing like 50 knots and they think they're going to, you know, all go down and they end up making it because the boats are pretty hardy and just terrifying stuff. I mean, being in a 28-foot boat, and again, Sparrow's 32, but Sparrow's built to be able to be out in those conditions. These were open boats. These were... You know, big enough wave hits it the wrong way and it just sinks the thing. I don't know. It's absolutely crazy. But eventually, they all run out of food. And as they run out of food, on both boats, people start to pass away. Because, you know, after that amount of time, there's going to be just a certain amount of the population that would just give up. And their body would just, their body and mind would say, that's it, I'm done. And then they pass on. And the decision was made on, on, on all the boats uh, to basically, oh, oh, and before we get into that, so Pollard and the other boat were together, but then ended up getting separated as well. And that was the last time they saw the mystery boat of the guy that I can't remember the name of. I believe it was Hendrix, but I can't, I don't want to uh, spout unfactual information but so that one was lost at sea never to be never to be heard from again but they did find the boat supposedly uh washed up on Ducey island which was an island in the Pitcairn chain and uh, it had a lot of bones in it but they never identified the bodies so our last two boats captain pollard's boat and owen chase's boat and people are dying and people are getting eaten, and they're eating those dead people. Uh, and then it gets to the point where nobody's dead, and we're all fed, and they're still trying to make it in. But now there's no more bodies to eat. And on Captain Pollard's boat, which is probably the most gruesome, they end up doing what's calling drawing they draw lots and essentially you can it's sort of like the whole matchstick thing where you have one short short straw um you know you put it in your hand and whoever draws it it's them and his nephew drew the short straw and even though Pollard said that, you know, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. He was going to defend it somehow, get him out of that and figure it out. He had pretty much given up at that point, And he said, it's as good as any, good as any decision doesn't even matter anymore. I mean, these guys are absolutely just on the edge of living anyway. So it doesn't, it's no big deal. They're just like, whatever. I don't even care. This is so miserable. End it, please. So they end up doing that. And, um, yeah, they end up dispatching his nephew and then eating his nephew, and uh, that's how they continue to survive. And this is going on on these boats. And essentially, on day 89 is when Owen Chase's boat is finally spots land. And then a ship comes and grabs them and brings them into shore, and they're rescued. And... Then on day 93 was when Pollard's boat, so this is the creepy one, the, I believe it's the Dauphin, another whaling ship, spots this little boat, and they're close to shore, but they're not all the way in, and they sail right up next to them, 
And it's like the two people in this boat don't even realize there's a ship next to them. What they see is two skeleton-looking humans just riddled with sores and sunburnt and almost wearing no clothes, sitting amongst a pile of bones, breaking them in half and trying to suck the marrow out of them. I mean, gruesome. And these guys barely even realized that there was a sailboat, a ship, right on top of them. Shadows cast over them. And I believe when they first tried to get them to come up, they wouldn't let go of the bones that they had. That's how demented these guys were at this point. And rightfully so. I mean, 93 days out there on that little boat. Unbelievable. But shortly thereafter, you know, they... They fed these guys, they got them to sort it out, and the story that they told was the story that I just told you. And it really, I mean, to to have that story relayed to you by the actual participants would have been, I, you know, I wouldn't even blinked my eye once, I think, while I listened. It would have been absolutely horrifying. But needless to say, after a bit of time, Spent in uh, South America, they're able to get uh, get transport and get back home to Nantucket. And meanwhile, our three little lone deserted islanders out there end up uh, getting a, a ship. is is told that yeah, there's these three guys. They're on this island. We thought it was. We think it's Ducey Island. It's actually Henderson Island, and they end up getting rescued. And they, I believe that ship was en route to Australia, so it would have been going with the wind to get over there and picked them up and took them over there, so they were all good. And then uh, Pollard and Chase and the rest of the crew, um, which was only a few people, ended up making it back to Nantucket. And I guess the epilogue, uh, so to speak, really is just... Uh, just as strange, uh, at least for for some of them. So Captain Pollard, who's kind of our main, main character here, he ends up getting another site. He comes from an old whaling family, so he's got a lot of pull. He ends up getting another site as a captain of the Two Brothers, which is another whaling ship. And shortly thereafter, they head back out to sea, which I can't even fathom. And even one of the uh, people who was in his little boat with him went with him back out to sea. Um, needless to say, they make it around the horn. They get over there and they're up off of Hawaii and end up running aground and wrecking the boat on a place called the French Frigate Shoals. So this is his second boat. That's it. You're canceled, bud. You're done. You are no longer a captain. He knew it. They end up getting rescued, all of them, by another ship that was out there, and uh, they get taken back to Nantucket. And Pollard throws in the towel, says, I'm not going out to sea ever again. He becomes the night watchman of Nantucket and is pretty much uh, kind of a beloved character at that point. And, you know, there's some rumors going around about him eating his nephew and all that sort of stuff and, and who who actually drew the short straw. But in the end, he, he sort of lived... Uh, into his late 70s, and I guess the only thing he used to always do was uh, on the anniversary of the sinking of the Essex, he would lock himself in the attic and and fast for the day. So that was that was how he lived out his days. Owen Chase went on to, to be a captain as well, and he went out on various voyages, but 
I think what happened with him is the memories and the trauma and the PTSD of, of going through all that affected him more and more as he got old. And he married like he got married like four times. He had a bunch of kids, all this stuff. But as he got older, he was like stashing and hiding food in the attic. He got weirder and weirder and eventually had to be committed uh, to an institution. And then uh, Thomas uh, Nickerson, the, the cabin boy, like I said, he came back and he, he transcribed his journals, but those were lost, and he just ended up working on the island. And that was, that was pretty much it. So thus ends the tale of the whale ship Essex. And it again, it's just... I, the fact that it's true and this happened and these guys went through that and... You know, forget, I don't want to get into the cannibalist start. You know, that stuff is obviously, uh, it's just a weird thing. And, and I don't know, you know, I, you could argue both sides of it, I suppose. You know, you got to live and everything, but just uh, talk about overcoming adversity. The ones that survive that, I mean, holy cow. And there is a plethora of other information that comes out of the book in the heart of the sea you read that book and you feel like you're an expert on nantucket and you got a pretty good glimpse into the world of whaling and it really is worth it and it's just such a crazy gripping american horror story that's absolutely true and uh that's why i think it's always going to be Always going to have a place here on Mighty Sparrow. I'm, I've got it on audiobook as well, and I love listening to it when I'm out at sea. Believe it or not, for some reason, it just always gets me, and, uh, and I absolutely love it. So that is what I wanted to talk about on my 100th episode of the podcast. Holy cow. Wow. That is that is just such a oh it's such a crazy story I couldn't imagine. I always try and put myself in the place of these people and I don't know. Like I said, I would have been on that island, man. I would have been like, "Well, let's let's build some cool huts or let's see if we can start a little fish farm." What do you say, guys? But obviously none of the others wanted to do that. That's so crazy. Oh, holy cow. Holy cow. And just the fact that a lot of them went back out to sea after that. But, you know, Stephen Callahan said the same thing. He, when people asked him, like, would you ever go back out there? He's, he says it right in the beginning. He's like, well, what else would I do? Just kind of a weird response, but whatever. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've only had a little bit of uh, compared to that story, I've, I've had the slightest tragedies uh, known to the human race out there, and uh, I still want to go back. I love going back out to sea, no matter what. It's uh, it's something that I guess just gets in you, and you you never really get over that. But wow, incredible! I hope everybody enjoyed listening to my condensed version of of the whale ship Essex and all that, and it really. I don't know. Like I said in the beginning, I can't thank everybody enough. I'm going to just keep on rolling. Let's uh, let's get busy on the next 100 episodes and try and make them even better than the first 100 if we can. So other than that, uh, I appreciate everybody listening and all the emails you're sending, the support. That keeps me going probably more than anything. Uh, but thank you. Have a great 
night or morning or whatever and uh enjoy the rest of july because it's almost over holy cow once august 1st comes it's a big wake-up call up here you know everybody kind of gets in their old uh midsummer the doldrums of the summer i say where you know the heat gets to you you're sort of doing the same stuff and it's you know people get a little grumpy but then it's like august 1st hits and people realize the summer's almost over and it's like, oh boy, we got to start having some fun. We got to do the things we said we were going to do. Let's enjoy our time. Let's let's uh, snap out of it a little bit. And I'm definitely trying to push for that and uh, keep everybody going up here because I'm having a ball. I love working in the yard. It's hot, sweaty, it's dirty. It's my kind of life. Thanks for listening. Till next time.